Welcome to the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Richmond, and this special episode is a continuation of our admissions director Q&A series. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Bruce Delmonico from the Yale School of Management. Bruce's title is Assistant Dean and Director of Admissions. He joined Yale SOM back in 2004 and has been leading admissions since 2006. Bruce has spent nearly two decades working in higher ed, and before Yale, Bruce was an attorney focused on First Amendment, white-collar, and commercial litigation. He holds degrees from Brown University, UT Austin, where he has an MA in English, and UVA, uh, the law school there, where he has a JD. And also, Bruce, if memory serves, you are originally from New Haven, Connecticut. So welcome to the show, and can you confirm or deny this New Haven thing? <laughs> I can I can proudly confirm that I am in, indeed a, a New Haven native. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Graham. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to, great to talk to you and great to be here. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Um, I just want to, I'm going to say full disclosure, Bruce is one of my favorite people in the MBA universe, not only because we've known each other for a really long time and he's an innovator and kind of leader in the space, but also because we're both really passionate about baseball and we've actually seen some baseball games in different stadiums over the years. So um, yeah, just appreciate you making time to do this, Bruce. And it's, I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> no, uh, me as well. It's always great to, to catch up and always uh, wonderful to talk. And yeah, no, the, the feeling is very much mutual. Cool. So um, what we're going to do is I have a handful of questions. I don't know if you've listened to any of the other ones we've done with um, some of your peers, but handful of questions about admissions at Yale SOM. And then at the end, we'll do some fun questions so our listeners can get to know you. Um, but before we kind of dive in, I just wanted you to tell me a little bit more about your background and the path that led you to your current role at, at Yale, just because, you know, you were a lawyer. And so I'd love to hear the story of like, how did you end up in this role? Yeah, no, you and you summarize, I think, very well. And it's true. I'm a, I'm a recovering lawyer. Uh, I think you never never completely get past it. Um, but I did make a pivot. Uh, it's as you said, almost two decades ago. It's crazy to think that how much time has passed um, going from from practicing, from being a litigator to then being in higher ed. And I think the the you know the 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 germs of it kind of were seeded uh, back starting back in college. I did some selection process work, not uh, not with the admissions office at Brown. Uh, but for, for counseling positions, I was a resident advisor and a resident counselor, and then I was on a committee and actually co-chaired a committee that, that's made selections, selected other counselors at, at, at the university. And I really enjoyed that, and I kind of stored it in the back of my head that that was a really fun experience. Um, and then when I was in law school, I was uh, on uh, a committee for, for you know, I think, my entire time, three years, um, uh, making awards for students who did public service internships. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, again, that involved application process. We would interview people, and I really, really liked that as well. And so um, that was the second data point that I kind of, kind of stored in the back of my head and said, you know, gosh, what's most analogous to that? Uh, and what, you know, what, what, you know, as I was kind of entering my legal career, you know, as I'm thinking about sort of the longer term, you know, what might, you know, what might that translate into in, in sort of in a more sort of professional context? And so as I was thinking about, you know, I, I'm. I guess I could have gone the route of sort of, you know, sort of being a sort of lifelong lawyer and then litigator. And I decided, that, you know, I've always, I guess the other piece of it is I've always been interested in higher ed. I was, you mentioned my degree from from UT Austin. I was in a PhD program there, and to t- decided to take um, so a, a terminal master so that I could go to law school because I was that's where my interests were were kind of leading me. But I was at one time thinking about teaching, mm-hmm. um, and then but so the, these selection process experiences plus sort of the higher ed academia sort of teaching interests kind of combine those and I thought admissions could be something that's really interesting so it just happened to work out my my you know predecessor um here at SOM uh sort of wonderful woman named Ann Coyle um 
we, you know, I reached out when she had an opening for a deputy director and, and we hit it off and her husband was a, a recovering lawyer. So she was so <laughs> sympathetic to, to my plight. Uh, and, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to work under her for two years. And then when she moved on, um, uh, to a new role, I stepped into to the director and now assistant dean position and have uh, really just in, enjoyed it uh, ever since and really not looked back. Yeah, that's terrific. And I, you know, it's funny, I hadn't thought about this as I'm reading off, you know, where, where you went to school and everything, I hadn't realized, you know, you've been through a competitive admissions process at, you know, an Ivy League undergrad and then UT Austin, which is a terrific school, yep. their MA in English program is good. And then, you know, obviously law school is no walk in the park in terms of getting in. So you must be able to empathize with everyone who's listening today in terms of what it's like to apply to school. Yeah, no, I think very much from my from my personal experience, and also you know one thing my my daughter's a my oldest daughter is a, a, in her first year of college, and so I was you know, we just went through that process as well, and so definitely very much empathizing with the with the, the plate uh, from that as well. <laughs> but you know, but the one thing to, in you know just as a um, so there's that piece, and also just you know as I think about you know people you know just connecting to and you know, we don't have to go down too far down the path, but connecting to people who are thinking about like. You know, think about what should I do with my life. I, I t- tend to tell people, like, think about what you like to do and sort of store those experiences and think about how that could translate. So instead of trying to think about this is the thing I need to do, think about what, you, what you've enjoyed doing in the past. And that's kind of what I did when I was crafting a, a career path. And obviously no one, when they're, you know, seven, eight year old, year, seven or eight years old says, when I grow up, I want to be an admissions officer. But, then, <laughs> you know, it's a more of a found career. But, you know, there, there's a kind of accumulation of experiences that I kind of, kind of put together and said, okay, what would that look like as a career? And it, it's so so far, at least, knock on wood, it seems like it's it's worked out okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it has. <laughs> um, I guess what this is a good um, kind of dovetail right into this next question, and I think you've reflected a little bit on it in telling your story. But I wonder, like, what do you like most about this job? And also, if you're willing, would you share something that maybe you don't like about this job too? Uh, I can, yeah, I'll try. And I do. I mean, I did sort of hint at this, and in, in from the experiences I had in, in college and in law school, you know, the selection process work. I like. There are different aspects of it that I like. One is, you know, sort of the sort of the voyeuristic aspect of like really seeing where people have come from and where they're going, and it's really um, and being part of that process is really kind of uplifting and really to to help people achieve their goals and 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 um, sort of be part of of them getting to where they they're aspiring to be is is very is very sort of uplifting and positive, as I said. And it's, mm-hmm. and I am, there is, as I said, that voyeuristic, like just seeing what people have done. There are so many people with so many interesting backgrounds and so many unique experiences. And it's really just on a selfish level, great to see that uh, and really interesting to see that. Um, so I think that's definitely um, one of the things I like. And I also do like the, you know, the committee part, the process, the committee process uh, and the, the communal part of the, the decision-making process. I'm a, uh, you know, I'm an introvert by by nature, and I think by default. Uh, and but I do, but I, I, you know, that's a this is a kind of a sort of communal um, um, you know, thing that we do that I really, really enjoy. And I think not every school. I, I've been very protective of our our committee process and making decisions by committee. Not every school does it that way. And I think it's mm-hmm. a little bit more labor intensive. We can talk about that later on. But I think it is is valuable to in, in my my mind in my experience for 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 how we make decisions. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things I think are are positive things I like. In, in terms of dislike, you know, there's very little I dislike. Uh, one of the things I, I guess I would, I would say is I, I don't like, I don't like saying no. Um, that's one other thing. And it's tough. You do have to say no in this job. And I think that's where it's kind of the empathy comes in and just having gone through competitive admissions processes and seeing others going through it and knowing. And that's one of the things I try and tell people is, um, you know, we say, mo- we say no more than I would like, um, unfortunately, but, um, and that's, I do tell people, you know, this is not, 
you know, this is not a referendum on you. This is not, you know, about a com commentary on your your potential uh, and your you know your your quality as an applicant. It's it's or as a person. It's really just, you know, our making a, a specific decision in this specific context and kind of doing doing the best we can as humans. So yeah, um, it's it's but it's it's tough and it, I don't I don't really enjoy it. Yeah, and I feel like um, others have mentioned that, and I think you know I remember even when I was working in admissions that you have this feeling sometimes that you could fill the class at least a couple times over, you know, with great people that you see, you know, in the applicant pool, and so it's really challenging to kind of whittle, <laughs> whittle things down. Yeah. Um, tell me about something new that's happening, or maybe is going to be happening soon on campus that you wish more of our listeners knew about. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's always, it, one of the next thing, I mean, obviously we're, as we're doing this, we're, we're still kind of in this kind of COVID limbo stage where we're, you know, fully in person yeah. at this point, but still, there are still restrictions. You know, the Yale campus is now on green status, which is great, but, you know, um, we're, there's still limitations on who can be on campus and, um, and you know, and, and, you know, visitor, visitor policies and those types of things. So it's, it's a little bit of a, of a still a little bit of an uh, awkward uh, period. Um, but one thing, you know, that, that we have coming up, um, and, uh, is it's, there have been restrictions on, on who can be on campus and it's really been limited to students. Um, but one of the, the important parts of our culture is actually sort of the partner culture. I and mean, we have lots of students coming with partners and with families. Um, and, um, and we weekly, in the in normal times, uh, we would have a weekly closing bell, uh, where um, where um, you know it happens Thursday night. So we have classes Monday through Thursday, no classes on Friday. So Thursday evening, the the school will sponsor basically a closing happy hour to celebrate the so end of the the school week. Mm -hmm. um, and this happens every week, and it's sponsored by different clubs and it, it different focuses um, depending on which club is sponsoring and different aspects to the experience. Um, we haven't had that this semester, which is unfortunate. And partner partner access to campus has been limited. So before the holidays, we're going to have uh, sort of the school, and I don't think it's announced yet. So, I'm, but I think this probably will air after it's announced. So I'm yeah. taking a little bit of a liberty here. Um, <laughs> um, a a, um, a a big sort of closing bell that would include partners and families, and I think it's nice because it has been. You know, we're we're I feel like we're such an inclusive environment and inclusive school and. And not having the partners being a part as part of the life of the school as they have been in the past has been a real challenge. And so having that happen, I think hopefully will be a, a nice celebration and a nice kind of, uh, you know, a winding down of the of the fall semester. Yeah, and I will say over the years as we've done, you know, real humans pieces with some of your students, like that close knit. Um, support for partners, families, and just just the nature of yeah, people coming together. You know, it's a smaller program, really stands out. So I can see how you'd be looking forward to that stuff sort of coming back online. Yeah. Um, and yeah, let's hope that this is you know the beginning of many more of those um, weekly <laughs> gatherings as we head into the spring. We'll see. Yeah. Let's hope so. Hopefully things are open. I'm not to develop, but I, I do think, and, and, and there are other signs, you know, that things are kind of starting to open up in yeah. terms of campus activity and, and even our international experience trips are, are going to be happening in the spring. They, they had been on hiatus. So mm -hmm. fingers crossed that can we continue in that direction. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's great. Um, so tell me about a Yale SOM stereotype that you want to debunk. I'm I'm sure there are lots of them, and they probably go in different directions. That you know, we're this or that. I, I think the one that I that I you know hear most common is is that you know we're the nonprofit school, mm -hmm. um, and it's tough. I don't I don't I don't want to debunk in the sense that you know we are incredibly strong in the social sector, uh, and I think that's so sort of well deserved and well earned. You know, our founding mission of educating leaders for business and society very much 
you know, envisions this uh, multi-sector approach where mm. we sort of bring together, you know, students and, and leaders from uh, from not just the private sector, but the nonprofit and the public sectors. And we've had tremendous leaders in across all sectors um, over the years. And so I don't want to, I, I, I don't think it's wrong to say that we're strong in the nonprofit space and, and, and maybe a leader in the nonprofit space and it's in, this, in the social sector more generally. Um, you know, when you look at things like rankings or other, you know, we're, we, we obviously are very well recognized there. But I think it's, I don't like it, I don't like to think about it as a limiter. I don't think it's, you know, I think, and I think there's some people who think, for example, when, you know, 90% of our students go out into the sort of the nonprofit space. And it's really, it's actually been sort of on the, on the decline of the last few years for, for, for different reasons. Um, and I think there are sort of sensible reasons. Um, but, but I think it's, I think it's, it's one area of, of strength, but it's not, you know, it's, it shouldn't be seen in a limiting sense. You know, we're, we think of ourselves as a very, very strong general management school. We educate our students to be leaders across all industries, all sectors, uh, and we see that that's where they where they go, and that's what they do. And so I think um, that stereotype, to the extent people who are interested in investment banking or management consulting or CPG or technology or healthcare or any number of other areas, think that oh gosh, that's not that the school for me. I think that that's 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 you know I think misguided, misplaced, and I think so to the extent people can see it's a it's kind of an and thing and plus you know we're mm-hmm. strong in the social space, but we're also strong in all these other areas, and we are you know a top I think in my mind a top five school, and I think the numbers show in you know all these areas, and so I think that that's um, that's one thing I would I would want to debunk. Yeah, and I think you're hitting on something that you know I always like for when possible to draw like a broad lesson here. And I think anyone listening who wants to go by these stereotypes, whether it's for Yale or any other program, like look at the placement statistics and look at where people are going. Do your homework because I think it's sometimes really easy to affix a label to some programs and not dig into the details and see, you know, that you guys have a lot of people, for example, heading into consulting and and finance and tech and all these industries that you just mentioned. So yeah. um, I'm glad that you spoke to that one because that is the one that I think comes up a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the next, the next thing I wanted to ask you, and this is one that this is, you know, just humor the applicants here. They want to know what happens when the file gets submitted, um, you know, behind closed doors, like they're, they're pressing submit and then they're sitting there waiting, you know, first for an interview invitation, if they're lucky, and then for a final decision. Can you walk us through like sort of the operation, um, behind the scenes a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I'll try to try to do my best. And, uh, and I think it is true. That's one of the, the challenging parts of being a, a, on the other side, being candid. It's you kind of hit submit, and then it's a bit of a black box. You might hear, you know, with the interview invitation or other other updates about you know where things stand, but it's not. It's a lot of waiting, and it's always that's always so difficult. Yeah. Um, we try to sort of communicate through the process, but it, there's never. I'm sure it's it's never enough. It's you never know. You know. I think early on, I had this idea that we could have this, you know, up, you know, real time status. You know, your file is being in being in the first read, and then the second read, and then this, and then, you know, I don't know if other schools have done that, but it, it real, it never really, we were never really able to operationalize in a way that made sense for for the candidate experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, uh, it's a little bit of a digression. So after after um, applicant hits submit, um, we, you know, and we we don't. We don't start reviewing applications until after the deadline. Um, we wait until all the applications are in, and so to the extent you, you as an as a candidate, you're thinking, you're trying to decide whether to submit, you know, how early to submit. Um, you know, obviously you don't want to wait till like 
the very last minute, you know, you know, uh, <laughs> at eleven fifty nine, and and you know, and hitting the button, and you want to make sure you give yourself a little bit of time. But you know, there's no benefit to submitting weeks or a month early because we won't be looking at your application until until after the deadline anyway. Okay. But there is actually for for us. So that's one piece of, of sort of I guess advice to to offer. Um, for for us, uh, I would the other thing I would say is we um, some of the schools might have some aspects of this, but we do have. Um, some some elements that are unique to us that are actually post submission. So after you hit submit, you get invited to um, complete both our our video question component of the application and, and the behavioral assessment, which are two two sort of you know I think other schools have some aspect of the video question. Um, I think we're the only school that does the behavioral assessment, um, and so you would you get invited to participate in the, both of those elements. Those are post submission. Usually have a you know few days you know you know you know sometime less than a week mm-hmm. to complete those, and then those elements get added to your file uh, and included in the review process as well. Okay. Um, so once but once this all happens after the deadline, the first thing we do is actually we all sit down as a um, as a committee. Um, and again, this is where I think the committee process is, is helpful. Uh, and we do just a quick um, sort of high-level um, um, summary of, of, what, of what the round looks like. Um, and then we go through and actually st- do start to sort of parcel out files uh, in terms of reading, in terms of interviewing. We do it early on. We try to parallel path uh, files as much as possible, um, if for nothing else, just to get, allow us to get through all the files so that there's movement happening as many files as possible, as early as possible, so mm-hmm. that, you know, you see, you see activity um, and you know that things are happening. Um, and then, so we go through the read process um, and uh, every file is, is reviewed by two different members of the admissions committee at different points. Um, and then we have a subcommittee, uh, so a subset of the admissions committee that makes interview decisions. So as the reading happens, those interview um, we have multiple, usually it's about a sort of half dozen or more what we call you know, interview committees where we make decisions on interviewing that happens throughout the round as files are read and they become complete and ready to, to, to decide. And then closer to the end of the round, um, we have what we, what, what's decision committee. Um, and that's the full committee. Uh, and we're sitting in, you know, together, although you know, by Zoom right now, uh, and we'll decide you know, whether that, how long that continues, but sitting you know, synchronously, we're sitting t- together making decisions on files, and we go one by one through the files, and as a, as a full committee make decisions, which I think is it's a little bit more labor-intensive than I think some other structures. We could have it be a subset. We could have it be, like, single-point decision-maker. Um, but this is, you know, the process I was brought into, and I, and, I, and I very much believe in the value of the committee process and you know, having the different voices heard uh, and having the different perspectives presented in terms of the quality of the decisions we make. So we, it's more labor-intensive, it's more time-consuming, but I think it is um, a valuable part of the, uh, uh, of the, of the decision-making process for us. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to just interrupt and ask you if um, this is sort of a real nitpicky question, but I was curious because you talked about it. Do, does the person that reads the file, the second, this let's call them the second reader, do they see what the first person, you know, said about it? Or is it sort of blind or however you would describe that? Yeah, I mean, blind is a term. The first, the second reader does not see what the first person, the first reader wrote. Those are that, those comments are suppressed. Right. Um, and there are other aspects of the application we suppress as well, you know, we could, which we could talk about to try to make sure we're trying, we're, we're minimizing bias as much as possible and not, not making decisions on, on things that are, are not relevant in our minds to the decision-making process. Uh, but that's one of them. We don't, we don't want the second reader to be influenced by what the first reader thought. So those are blind. Um, and, and then the interview information is also um, 
um, something that is not visible to the readers until until we sort of go into committee. Okay, uh, got it. So to the extent that that's something that becomes available yeah. um, earlier in the process. Okay, got it. Um, so another question about the application process. I think this has been a great like run through of how it works on your end. Um, I wanted to just know, kind of ask you if you had any tips or you kind of uh, if you had to give one key tip about approaching your application essay, mm-hmm. what would it be? Yeah. So about the essay specifically, uh, you know, ours is. Uh, I mean, everyone has a different essay, and everyone's looking for different things. So uh, every school, every school is unique in that respect. So I won't say our essay topic is unique, but it is specific to us. It's described the biggest commitment you've ever made. It's something that we have been using for you know several years. Uh, we developed it in conjunction with uh, Amy Wisniewski, who's one of our uh, 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 prominent organizational behavior faculty members who does research on the meaning of work and what it, you know what it means to be have a job versus a calling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think this is something that's particularly well-suited for, for a business school essay and, and for, for her area. Um, the one thing I would say is um, we, I guess, actually, if we can stretch it into maybe a couple of things, um, you know, this is a, the universal um, aspect of this is, is to answer the question. I think every school will say that, so that applies to any, <laughs> any essay you're writing is, is to answer the question. But for us, what that means is um, we're looking for a single commitment um, that you've made, that's your, that you just that you would consider your biggest commitment, and we're really looking not for uh, for you to talk about sort of the, the 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 behaviors that demonstrate that commitment. We're really looking for how you followed up on that commitment, and not really not more of a sort of a thought piece about sort of your philosophy behind it or your your why you although you can talk about why you why that's your biggest commitment, but really how you demonstrated um, you evidence that that commitment and what what you did to demonstrate um, the, you know. A, a, a support for that commitment. Um, so that's the thing I would say um, is probably the most important to know. Uh, and I guess the biggest tip I would provide about the essay specifically. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. I, I agree with you. Everyone always says, oh, be authentic, you know, answer the question, et cetera. But I think this this sort of brass tacks, like you got to pick something that you're committed to and then talk about how, what you've done, you know, to support that and things that that's really good. Yep. Good advice. Um, so you guys are unique, though, in that you don't have an essay about applicants' career plans mm-hmm. or even about like their specific interest in Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, can you walk us through the rationale there? And is maybe is this something that gets tackled later in either in the interview or um, maybe in some of the other stuff, the, the sort of post-submission um, tasks that you mentioned earlier? But yeah, just walk us through why you guys don't ask about those kind of very common questions. Yeah, I think there are a few things here, um, and one of them is that we, you you know, when we put together the application, we definitely were very, I think we were very intentional about trying to think about what information we need at various points and having complementary pieces of information requested at different points. So we're not just kind of throwing everything at you at once, but we're kind of, we're kind of, you know, staggering and staging it and thinking about what to ask when and what context and what medium is best to, to ask certain pieces of information. Um, and so, and we, and we tried to, for a number of reasons, which we don't want to be redundant and we also, and we want to be sensitive to the, the applicant experience and what you're going through and, and what you're having to put together and what you're having to say. Um, so we do, I think, one thing, so in terms of um, the, the career piece and in terms of why Yale, we do, that is that is part of the, more, the the interview process. It's more the interview experience. I think that we think that that's better um, uh, able to be expressed there. Mm-hmm. But we do, we do, so we don't, um, 
and we assume that if you're applying to us, you're applying because you're interested in coming to school with us. So we don't need to ask that necessarily. Right. Um, <laughs> um, we do ask in the application, there are a couple of short answers that talk about your career. There's a one particular short answer that talks about your career, post-MBA career interests. So we do ask about it there. We don't ask about an essay because that's not what we're looking for in the essay. And we don't, I guess that's another piece of information that I would, would, would another tip is you don't have to try and shoehorn in your career interests or why Yale or why the MBA into your essay because we do ask about that elsewhere. Um, and so that's another aspect, reason for sort of just answering the question because we're, we ask for different pieces, as I said, of information at different points. Uh, and we're trying to, we then, we then put it all together to create as, as sort of three-dimensional a picture as possible of, of you as a, as a candidate. Um, but we do ask, a, we have a short answer in the application where we ask about your post-MBA career goals. Um, but I will say, you know, the other, one of the other reasons we don't ask for it in the essay and we ask for it in a short answer and we actually don't really lean on that in, in making decisions because your post-MBA career interests are so kind of malleable, they change so much, it's such an unstable data point on, for, on which we would make a decision. So we don't really do that because we know so many people change their minds from what they say they're going to do in the application to what they actually do. Making our admission decision based on your career interests really doesn't make sense to us. So we do ask for it as partly for, for information gathering, partly for, for reporting, we, but, but also to the extent it's for, for evaluation. It's not because we're evaluating and making value judgments about the career decisions you're articulating and saying, oh, this is a good path, that's not a good path. Mm-hmm. We're more interested in understanding your thinking behind it and what you've done. Again, similar to the, the commitment essay, what you've done to kind of support it and to prepare yourself for it. So we want to, we're more interested in your thought process uh, in terms of how you approach issues and how you approach project problems and less about the specific goals you see for yourself professionally. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know, I feel like I've, I've peppered you on this one before in some of the events that we've done together. So I'm really glad though, that this is getting sort of um, into the podcast, because I know a lot of people are going to listen to this over the you know next year or even beyond. So it's great to have this advice here. Um, let's talk about the interview process at Yale. I know sure. that you mentioned there's there's like a um, kind of a subcommittee that, you know, you have these sort of um, committees that are get it, gathering to make the decision about whether someone's going to be invited to interview. Yep. But tell me about like, how does the interview itself work? Who does somebody interview with? And and how, like, what should someone do to prepare if they're fortunate enough to get invited? Sure, sure. And and I'll say, you know, an interview is required to be admitted, um, as it is, I think, at a, a number of at many schools. Um, but we don't interview every single candidate. We interview, depending on the year, anywhere from maybe around a third, mm-hmm. I would say, of our of our applicants are, are ultimately overall are interviewed. It varies from sometimes it's more, sometimes less, but it varies from year to year. And not being interviewed is, one thing I would say, not being interviewed does not mean you're necessarily be denied. Um, we actually do waitlist a good number of people without interviews just because okay. there are constraints on the number of people we can interview. And we want to, sometimes we have questions, we want to gather more information, and then we might be, that might be the case that later on in the year we do interview them and then, and then admit them then. So it's okay. just to be, so people don't get overly discouraged that if you're not interviewed, it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be denied. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so we interview a subset of the applicants uh, uh, each year. Um, and those are the interviews themselves are they are 30 minute interviews. They are uh, typically with trained second year students. Um, sometimes the admission staff does some interviews, but m- the majority of the interviews are with are with second year students, even more so now during during COVID because we don't have on campus interviews. We're not traveling to do hub interviews or anything mm-hmm. uh, like that. And so it's, it's mostly um, sort of Zoom or S- Skype interviews with uh, with second year students. Um, the interviews are and they are trained. Actually, we have a whole process of sort of training and and um and touching base uh we we, we have uh uh 
um, David Crusoe, for example, in the, the Yale uh, College Dean's Office, who helped with Peter Salovey, the, the president of Yale, who developed them. So Mesquite, it's the Myers Salovey Crusoe emotional intelligence test. You know, he's, he's a social psychologist, and he really um, uh, is really good about helping our students sort of get in the right mindset and understand how to minimize bias and really sort of train them to be as consistent. One of the things we really care about is having as consistent experience as possible. So that's why for us, the interviews, they're 30 minutes um, trained second year students, but they're, they're structured in nature. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not unstructured interviews. We, we know that from lots and lots of research that unstructured interviews basically have very little sort of predictive validity. And so that's why we have our interviews are, are structured, which means that everybody gets the same questions in the same order, asked in the same way, mm-hmm. um, which might sound a little more rote, but it's actually, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, but we feel it's more fair to the candidates. Um, and the, the questions are, you know, I kind of g- gave you a little bit, you know, we do ask the why Yale, we ask a little bit about your post-MBA career, and just, um, we ask some behavioral questions that ask how you, you know, ask how you handled certain situations. So you think about, in terms of how to prepare, um, should know your story, review your application, review your resume, um, because and be able to pull out experiences of things of successes, of failures, um, the, the typical kind of interview questions you think you might be asked in a, you know, a job interview, mm-hmm. um, you should be prepared for. Um, there are no curveballs, no trick questions. We're not trying to kind of sort of fool you or, you know, make you do any sort of market sizing, you know, uh, calculations <laughs> or how many, you know, you know, how many, you know, golf balls can you fit in the Empire State Building or anything anything like right. that. We're, they're very very straightforward. It's not meant to be a, a, a painful or difficult experience. It's really more just to get to know you more and in a different context. Um, and then, as I said, those the, the student will write up the interview report. It'll get added to your file, and then it'll be considered as, an, as another data point as we make decisions and decision committee. And I guess that's one final thing I would say about the interview is people do get, I think, very anxious about them, get stressed about them. Um, and I think it's you know, it's the last thing that you do that you have control over before you kind of sort you you kind of have to finally sit and wait for your decision. I think people think it's very candidates think it's a kind of an up or down. Like if you do well in the interview, you're in. If you don't, you're not. It's it's not at all the case. It is just one more data point. And a lot of times we're looking for specific things or trying to get a little information that might confirm certain things we're seeing in the read or might help us debunk certain things we you know, kind of rebut certain things we saw elsewhere in the read. So a lot of times as much it's for kind of shaping our impression or helping us get more information that it will will help us understand you better. And it's not about a yeah, yes or no, you know, up or down kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, again, lots of really <laughs> good advice there. Uh, and I think you're right. People, they, they, because it's the last step of a process, often they feel like it's the final decision maker, but it sounds like it's not at all that. It's just another data point, which is good to know. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, I mean, Yale SOM happens to be part of a university, um, Yale University, which, you know, is known the world over. But I'm wondering, you know, how do you all take advantage of that? Because it's obviously Yale University is this large, you know, institution with so many different graduate schools and, and a, you know, really prestigious undergraduate. I mean, it's just, but how do you guys, you know, tap into that? Yeah, in, in, in many, many ways. I'm really pre- glad you asked this question because it is one of the things I think that is really special about the Yale SOM experience. Um, and, and it's one of the, I think the, the real advantages of coming to Yale SOM is you do come to Yale and, you know, it's obviously one of the most eminent universities in, in the world. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great place to be, but actually the, the school and the university more generally does a lot to try to encourage interactions across the university, which I think makes a big difference in the student experience. Um, and so, um, and we do say very much when you come to Yale SOM, you come to Yale. And so, you know, some of the ways in which that manifests itself as a, as a student, the, how your, your, your experience here will be shaped and influenced by 
by uh, so our our being situated at 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 Yale is that um, first of all when you obviously you know we're you know the, our MBA program is a, a full time two year MBA. The first year is mostly the core curriculum, but you start to take electives in the spring of the first year, and your your second year is entirely electives. And you can, you know, at Yale, you can take those electives anywhere at the university without limit. So you could theoretically take all of your electives outside of the School of Management. Hmm. Those would all count towards graduation. Um, and it, and it's, you know, I think know some schools talk about, you know, certain number of electives you could take outside of uh, of the business school, but but at, at Yale SOM, it's it's it, you, there's no limit, and it's great because. Um, you know, if you wanted to do one of the examples I give, for example, if you wanted to go into real estate finance, um, you obviously there are lots of SOM courses you could take, but you could also take classes at uh, at the you know the environment school to about sustainable development, and you could take classes at the law school about sort of about sort of real estate law, and you, you know, and 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 you could take the course course at the architecture school about mm-hmm. design, and yeah. you know, so uh, and and there's so you could really really sort of amplify your SOM education in so many meaningful ways. Um, so that's one aspect. There, you know, those kind of connections exist across the university on different levels, not just academically. Um, and again, the university does really try to make the the whole the. the Yale tries to make the whole university as, as sort of porous, as permeable as possible. So there are, there are clubs. There's actually a, 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 the Schwartzman Center, which is a new graduate hub for, for graduate students across the university but on central campus. Um, there's a grad, graduate student bar, Gypsy, uh, which is which are Griffin's, Griffin's Pub, I think it's called now, which has lots of, um, you know, lots of activities for students to get to know each other. One of my, one of my favorites, I've told this story before, so, or this anecdote before, so I apologize for repeating myself, but one of my favorites is there's a mixer between the law school and the medical school um, that's called the, the ambulance chasers mixer, which I think is just kind of fun, <laughs> but that's the kind of flavor of, you know, of how that, you know, Griffin's pub. But then more seriously, there are, um, you know, there's the, for example, the healthcare conference that we have at SOM is a, is run collectively by the SOM students, both our MBA and EMBA students, uh, students from the medical school, Public health and nursing, hmm. um, so all working together to put together a healthcare conference. We have Sci City, the Center for Innovation, uh, Innovative Thinking at Yale, which is founded by uh, Joe Sai, who's the the number two at Alibaba and was Yale College and Yale Law School, and that's a sort of an, an innovation hub at Yale. It's for it's an entrepreneur entrepreneurship entrepreneurship suite. Um, there's a maker space. There's a lot of sort of happen, stuff happening around design thinking. So and that really brings together students from SOM and law school and the med school, engineering and undergraduate and computer science. Um, So those are the types of things that happen across the university. I I could go on. I probably have gone on too long, but there's really (laughs) a a lot. Um, And it gets me excited because I think there are, you know, among business schools, we very much, there are some schools that are kind of either standalone because they don't reside at a large university or de facto standalone because they do, but don't really interact with that university in a meaningful way. And we're at the other extreme. And I think it really does influence the experience here. Yeah, and I, I feel like I'm beating a little bit of a dead horse because we talked about this a little bit with like the, you know, is the school stereotype in some way and look at the stats on where people go afterwards. But the same thing is here. A lot of universities will say, um, or a lot of MBA programs will say, oh, you have access to the whole university. You can take some elective courses. But then when you read the fine print, it's like one or two classes is all that you could possibly do. Um, and so I think people listening should definitely take note of, you know, what you've just said, which is that it's sort of limitless. You can do what, whatever you want across the institution. So that's really interesting and I think somewhat unique from what I've, at least from what I've encountered historically at other programs. No, I, I very much agree. And obviously I, I'm saying bias, but I, I do, it does seem like it's a difference of not just degree, but of kind, like yeah. it's just the, the extent to which 
the university is open to you, not just academically with the, the unlimited number of electives, but but all the other things that are happening across the university, I think is really, really fantastic. Yeah. So um, we're going to shift gears here for this next question in an entirely different direction. Um, and I, I want to ask you about your Silver Scholars program, yes. which is for college students who want to get a head start on the MBA. And um, it's, you know, some people would put it in a deferred enrollment bucket, but it isn't really because, you know, with Silver Scholars, you go right from senior year, typically in, in um, university, right into the first year curriculum of the MBA. And then you get a break for a year to intern and then you come back. But I wanted to know who should focus on that accelerated path to an MBA at Yale? And yeah, what you know, what would you say about like if someone's trying to decide whether it's right for them? Yeah, it's a great question. It is It is typically, you know, Silver Scholars, as you said, Graham, it's um, it's not truly deferred admission because you do go straight from your undergraduate to us uh, at Yale. So, I mean, it's, it's overall a three-year program. So you do the first year uh, core with us, you do a, an extended one-year internship, and then you return in your third year um, to, to do the, the, the second year of the MBA, second academic year of the MBA program. So it actually gets you through more quickly. It gets you through, you know, it, uh, the fastest. You can sometimes extend, you know, the internship or do other things. So, but in its fastest iteration, you get through in three years as opposed to, you, you know, the longer um, deferred uh, enrollment programs. And I think that the thinking behind it, not to go too much into sort of the theory and philosophy behind it, but is that, you know, the first year, having you come straight to, to business school after undergrad is taking advantage of your, 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 the height of your ability to extract information from the classroom setting. Like you're at the peak of your, your skills at that point. So that's the most efficient. Yeah. Then you get the one year internship to apply those skills. And then you come back for the, the second year, then to kind of fill the gaps and kind of supplement with the things you learned on that internship or what you need to, what more you need to learn to be an effective leader. And so that's sort of the idea behind it. Um, I think it's, in, in terms of who it's for and, and maybe um, any advice, it, it, we see people who do a range of things. We've seen people who've gone, obviously, tr- more traditional investment banking, uh, management consulting, but some who've done, you know, un- been sort of entrepreneurship, some who've done, you know, even, uh, you know, one early, early um, you know, uh, silver scholars have gone into, um, went into sort of, sort of publishing, and some others have as well, actually, as I think about it, uh, but in the technology, CPG, so that it's really broad. I think the idea behind who it's appropriate for is if you really feel as though you um, have a little bit more direction, um, the MBA is often a, a time for, for a little self-exploration, self-discovery, and kind of get figure, figuring out, even if you have a sense of what you want to do, kind of figuring out a little bit more. I think Silver Scholars, if you have a little bit more direction, have a little bit more of a sense, uh, maybe a little bit more um, impatient, I don't know, um, to, <laughs> to get through it. Obviously, obviously the opportunity costs are the lowest going straight through. The, the more you're out in the workforce and the, more you're, the, more, the higher your salary, the more the opportunity costs to come back to school. So there is that efficiency perspective. I think some people um, combine that with having a, maybe a clearer sense of what they want to do. And, and, but it's really industry agnostic. It's not meant for anybody going into any particular area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really do have a play. We have dedicated career services resources for Silver Scholars to help you because a one-year internship is, um, is rather bespoke. It's not something that, that recruiters are, are used to hiring for. So we do have to do a little bit more sort of hand-to-hand combat on that front. And we do have to lean on um, but about the Yale network, some individual networks on this end, also your network and helping you kind of advise you on how to, to leverage those. Um, so it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more tailored in that respect. Uh, but it's not, it's, it is industry agnostic. As I said, it's not specific to any area. And then advice I have for, for candidates, you know, as, as we're reviewing Silver Scholar applications, 
um, I would say we do tend to lean a little more heavily on the academic piece, this, the, the, your transcripts and your test scores, because you don't have the, that full-time work experience. Um, so just making sure you're, those, those aspects are as strong as, as you can make them, not that you should ignore them for if you're not applying through Silver Scholars. Um, <laughs> but, then, but then the other piece is because we don't have the full-time work experience, we do look for other things, uh, internships, activities in college that will be kind of proxies for that. And so to the extent you can kind of highlight those as well, and especially how they might be, you know, might, we might be able to get a signal for how, how effective you'll be as a leader from those if you've been able to sort of lead an activity or had any sort of maybe heightened internship opportunities. Um, those are definitely helpful for us as well. Okay. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, so I guess the last question I had for you is, around COVID. And I think you sort of touched on this earlier. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't want you have to repeat too much, but I, I just wanted to know, like, how are things going? What are the plans for, if any, campus visits eventually? You know, because obviously folks listening are largely prospective students. And so they're thinking of applying or in the process of applying. And yeah, just be good to know what you're hearing. Cause I, you know, as you said, classes are back to being in person, yep. um, but the other stuff hasn't happened yet. Right. In terms of campus visits or whatever. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and Yale, I think has, has been taking overall, uh, a very, on the, a cautious approach, but I think a, a smart approach, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Connecticut has done very well in, in, in terms of sort of it, the COVID rates and being you know, one of the, the, um, sort of the lowest rates in the country. Um, Yale has done a really good job of think of keeping keeping the, the rates down. Um, as I said, we just the status of the campus status just went to green, so they're like red, yellow, green, and we're, we've just transitioned to green, which I think is a great sign. It's based on the fact that I think everyone's doing a really good job and doing their part to to stay safe and and be you know maintain distance and you know mask wearing and all the things we need to do and getting getting sort of vaccinated and ongoing testing to, to sort of keep the rates down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're cautiously optimistic that going into, you know, we haven't had, we haven't been traveling, we haven't had campus visits um, yet, um, and we won't through the, you know, through the end of 2021. We're hoping as we go into 2022 that will change, and we're hoping to maybe reintroduce campus visits. I don't know when. We have, there's a health and safety committee, uh, both at SOM and university-wide, that um, sort of, that reviews these kinds of requests and makes decisions based on the prevailing conditions and kind of the, the, the guidance of the university. Um, so we're hoping, I think in the spring, to, to, that we might be able to, to roll out, begin so campus visits. Um, we are hoping in, in January, this is fingers crossed, that we'll get permission to do some um, in-person admitted student activities, mm-hmm. um, so which which would be great, which would be kind of a toe in the water to that, and then more on for on the on the that's more admissions oriented on the on the school level. As I, as I said, I, you were right. I, I did touch on this already. Um, re- you're restarting our international experience trip in spring, uh, and the the international experience activities, uh, the global network week, global, global network um, um, activities for, uh, that we that we have uh, typically every every fall and spring. Is, is big and hopefully opening up, you know, we have I talked about the, the special event for, for students and partners and hopefully in the spring that will be, there'll be more access and we'll be able to welcome more people to campus on a regular, more regular basis. And then I think at some point, again, getting back to admissions, not, we haven't done this, you know, since, you know, 2019 um, and we went through the end of this year, but maybe starting in 2022 at some point we will begin to fold in travel. And, and we're really trying to find the, um, and Graham, you know this, you know, we, we talk and we, we've done, you know, we work together to try and think about what the right balance is between in-person and virtual travel going forward. Um, the, 
the, the democratization of, of recruiting, I think, has been a, a positive thing in the sense that we've been able to reach more people and it kind of levels the playing field for people who aren't in major cities or aren't able to get to in-person events. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure we will have some some in-person events sort of opening up in the uh, in 2022 at some point. Yeah, that makes sense and is consistent with what, you know, other folks I've been talking with are saying, you know, sort of wait and see maybe in, in you know, in the next calendar year. Um, so I appreciate you going through all these questions. I, I've learned a lot. I mean, I feel like I've known you a long time and, and known your team and stuff, but I've learned a lot um, about how you guys do stuff. Um, we have these, as you as you know, I did give you a heads up. We have these lightning round questions that we like to ask yep. um, so that our listeners can get to know you. Yes. And we do them kind of rapid, rapid fire. So if you'll, you know, humor us. Um, <laughs> I'll run through these and, you know, again, these are just meant to be fun. Uh, and yeah, we'll just sort of, I'll fire away whenever you're ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Lay it on me. <laughs> All right. So the first one is coffee or tea? Uh, coffee, definitely. Okay. Um, beach or mountains? Yeah, I, I was wondering whether museum can be an option too there. <laughs> I, I'm a little bit a little bit more of a house cat, but I would definitely go with, I would definitely go with uh, mountains over beach if uh, with those two choices. Okay, now you've made me remember that Yale has an absolutely fantastic, the university has a fantastic art museum, which I would encourage anyone. When you guys do open up for campus visits, um, make that a little piece of your, although I'm an art history major from undergrad, so I'm wildly biased on this stuff, but yeah. um, I remember visiting that museum. Um, are you a morning person or more of a night? owl definitely a night owl okay um what is a pet peeve that you have pet peeve i um i gosh i've i'll have to limit it i probably have (laughs) a ton but this is a very specific one and this is born of i think of this past weekend having to having to uh uh deal with holiday traffic as i uh drove my daughter got picked my daughter up from from the airport and then brought her back and i always this is a very special. I always am frustrated by when when there's a kind of a, a mur like when there's a, a, a an exit or kind of the cars are going off and you know splitting and mm-hmm. and everyone's lined up and then that one person goes all the way to the front and kind of cut in at the last minute. <laughs> I'm like, D- do you not? We all know where we're going. It's not like you're and like you're you're in any greater rush than the rest of us. We're all kind of following. We're all following directions, and you're kind of just off, kind of cutting in front of everybody else. So that's very specific pet peeve that I've experienced a little bit over this past holiday weekend. And you need to hang out with Blair um, Mannix, who's the, as you know, as admissions director at Wharton, because when I asked her this question, she talked about um, parallel parking, like people who can't parallel park really bug her. Um, So yeah, both of you have these (laughs) road-oriented pet peeves. Um, What about a guilty? (laughs) What about a guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure? Oh gosh. I um I don't have much time for many guilty pleasures right now. Uh I do uh, I think probably like I don't watch a ton of TV but a, a little bit uh of uh uh you know if when I get a chance to have a do, do a little bit of a TV watching and it's and, and a lot of times in various realms I've been you know sports is always always big. Um and I watch with my my youngest my son we we actually watched a show called holy moly which is a it's a mini golf themed competition which is sounds kind of weird but it's a lots of fun (laughs) okay so i guess that would be a guilty pleasure i have not heard of this this is good um all right so Mm -hmm. what about um what's your favorite virtue in others uh favorite i would i mean there are lots i would i would say generosity is one that i I always value and i always think is an important thing uh, for others and and self as well obviously Mm -hmm. okay that's a good one. Uh, what about a happy place? Um, 
I guess this is keeping with my my earlier comment in the in context of Beach or Mountain. But home is always uh, always a happy place, and I um, just being able to sort of relax and unwind. Got it. Uh, what are what's your favorite comfort food? Hmm. <laughs> any, any, probably anything unhealthy. I guess <laughs> I guess I cannot. I guess I would I would have to turn in my New Haven card and my my townie card specifically if I I guess if I didn't say pizza mm. uh, because New Haven is is renowned as probably the pizza capital of the world I think to to many people um, and so I think I, I think that I kind of have to answer that. Uh, yes, I can confirm. I can confirm. In another life, I was on tour playing music in a band, and we came through New Haven to play. And we, I was taken to a place that I think is called Naples. Is or is it called Naples Pizzeria or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Which which isn't actually. It's oh, no long. Naples is a. You're, were you at a Toad Place? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. yeah. So Naples was you know, right around the corner from Toads, and it then became Wall Street Pizza. It's actually no longer there, and that's actually. Among the among the sort of New Haven hierarchy, that ranks rather low, or ranked rather wow, low. Okay. There was uh, on the pecking order, so we'll need to make sure you get the your right. true New Haven pizza <laughs> at some point. All right. Good. Not that it's bad; it was bad pizza, but it was not. Uh, it was not the royalty of New Haven pizza. Okay, good to know. All right, we'll steer me correct in the right direction <laughs> next time I'm around. Uh, what about what's been uh, one of your proudest moments? I don't know. It, it's actually because you did share this with me before, and I was trying to think. You know, it's. I was trying to think of some like big sort of crowning something or other. You know that actually the the moment I the what came to me the moment that I'm most proud of is, um, and maybe this is dovetails uh, with my my um, favorite virtue is um, when my kids do something selfless and it doesn't even have to be a big gesture. I, I often my my middle so I have three and so I mentioned my oldest. Who's in college, and my youngest, who's who's my compatriot in in sort <laughs> of TV moly. watching, <laughs> holy moly, and other. I got over in that's not we don't watch that a ton. I kind of over <laughs> I'm overplaying that one. I think a little bit, um, but that was just we just happened to watch that recently, so I was on my mind. Um, but you know, I think my middle, you know, for example, when it's a small gesture, but you know, when we are having you know, had dinner the other day, and and um, and and my mom was over, and there was like one last you know, I think you muffin and she, my daughter reached for it. And then she looked up and said, you know, did you have one yet? And my mom said, no. And she gave it to her. And mm. I thought that that was, I don't know, those little gestures I think are meaningful to me. And I was really pleased to see that she had that kind of mindset that instead of just kind of grabbing and, and eating, she actually thought about who else had had some and, and who else might want it more than she did. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. Um, as a, you know, as a dad myself, like I definitely, um, hear you there. And now I'm really glad you spoke about your middle child too, because if they listen, you know, you would have been potentially in trouble for, <laughs> for only talking about two of your children. So this is good. Uh, okay. What about a superpower that you wish you had? A superpower? Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know if this is realistic, but then I realized that like superpowers are inherently not realistic. So I don't know why I'm sort of drawing a line somewhere, but the I, I, time travel is one I wish I, you know, I always think of superpowers like invisibility or like x-ray vision or stuff like that, like in the moment. But I like, if I could travel in time, I think that would be the most fascinating thing. Yeah. I hear you there. Um, what about, <laughs> this is kind of an unfair question, but which part of your own school's admissions process would you most like to skip if you were applying? I think if I were applying, I think under, I think I, and I may, this might, this is partly me. And then I'm sure part, like applicants as well is the, you know, the interview process. I'm sure people, um, just 
I'm not looking forward to that. And that's and that's one when we were talking earlier. That's one one of the reasons I said like, it's only one data point. Don't don't get overly stressed. It's not it's not make or break um, because I think people do get very worked up about the interview. And and I think it's actually. Um, if anything, it's it's really an opportunity just to get learn more about the school and and have us see another another side of you. So, but I can I can understand that that's that's a piece that feels maybe more anxiety inducing. I think for me, it it always was as well, and mm-hmm. so can I can totally I can totally empathize with that. I'm thrilled that you said that, just because you know we've done a bunch of these admissions director chats, and so many people say, oh, the test. You know, I wouldn't want to take. Mm. Um, you know, so. <laughs> Um, so I'm glad that we get kind of a different um, perspective here. And I have one more question for you, and and maybe the answer is going to be holy moly, but yeah, I, wanted no, to, <laughs> I wanted to know what's the best thing that you either read, watched, or listened to recently? Um, I haven't been doing much sort of non-work-related reading lately, although I haven't been doing a lot of work-related reading either. <laughs> so unfortunately for the, te- to, for the team, I, um, I would say in terms of, I would go with um, watched, uh, it's uh, it's not holy. It's in addition to Holy Moly. We're not going to be. <laughs> sort of, uh, it, it's a show. I don't know if you know. It's a show called What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, I um, there was a movie that it's ba- there's a movie that it's based on, um, which I want to see the movie. But I've been I've I've seen now the the third season just wrapped, um, and it's about these vampires in Staten Island. But they're like all about their like foibles and their like uh, misadventures. And it's it's by it's it's by. Um, Jermaine Clement and uh, Taika Waititi, um, and uh, Jermaine Clement did uh, Flight of the Concords, uh, okay. and they and and they were. It's kind of just really offbeat and just hilariously funny, and I'm really. Um, so anyway, that's my I guess guilty pleasure. I could probably <laughs> substitute Holy Moly for that, um, but it's a really it's a great show, and I'm actually I do want to go maybe over over break and, and actually watch the movie. They were in the movie, but they're now just like the producers of the of the series. Got it. Okay. Oh, that's a good recommendation. Um, so Bruce, I'm sure that you have files to read and committees to get to and stuff given the time of year. And I really appreciate you making you know time to do this. Um, it's always fun to, to catch up. So yeah, thanks a lot for, for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's always great to catch up. All right. So everyone stay tuned for more episodes of the Clear Admit podcast. And please remember to rate and review the show wherever you listen.